welcome to Embargo, a podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike. I am one of your hosts, Brian Fleming. I'm here as always with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? Um, happy summer, happy hot summer, happy vaccinated summer. We're finally in the same location, although different rooms at this point for sound and technical reasons. Yeah, we're at least we're back in the same location, so that's a step in the right direction. We had a we had an actual in-person meeting, a lunch meeting earlier today, uh, so at a downtown DC restaurant, one of our favorites. Um, and now we are uh, doing a little Monday afternoon pod recording, so I th- I feel like this is progress, totally. uh, modest progress, but pro- totally. progress nonetheless. We're beating um, the so vac- thanks we're everyone beating for beating the the COVID. Yeah, well, yes, being vaccinated is a good thing. We're beating the COVID. Um, we uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us, as always. Uh, and thanks to everybody for uh, comments, feedback since the last episode. It's been we've taken a three week break. So a lot happened. We're not going to touch on everything that has happened in the month of June, but we do have a few uh juicy bits to cover i think in the next hour or so uh and then i think we are going to hold true to our promise next time i think we are going to have some guests we're going to sort of tease some of the topics we're going to cover with them uh the next go around in july but uh for today it's a pretty traditional uh episode like i said we're going to um catch up on some of the things that we haven't uh, been around to discuss the last few weeks while we've been uh scattered to the winds but uh now here we are late july this will go up right before or late June, this will go up right before the 4th of July holiday weekend. Uh, so if you have a long road trip, uh, hopefully this will uh, this will give you some some accompaniment when you're uh, when you're on your way to hopefully someplace nice and warm and sunny to have a cold beverage and a, and a, spend some time with friends and family. Um, so uh, before we get started, of course, the normal uh, disclaimers: we're not giving legal advice, we're not discussing any confidential information. Uh, any and all opinions that you hear today are mine and Tim's. Please uh, blame us if you disagree with anything you hear from us. Um, and if you enjoy the pod, please subscribe. You can find us anywhere you get your pod content. Uh, please leave us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. Uh, spread the word. Uh, let everybody know uh, about Embargoed. And uh, with that, with that um, let me just run down quickly what we're going to cover today, and then we can get right into it. So we can't help ourselves. We're going to start with some news, non-news news, which is uh, the latest on JCPOA 2.0 and whether or not it is in fact actually now in a bit of jeopardy and whether it is or is not going to happen. We're going to start with that. We'll probably hit that pretty quick, but um, that's what we're going to start with. We're then going to pivot to Belarus and the actions that came out about a week ago, uh, coordinated between US, UK, EU, notably, and Canada. Uh, with respect to Lukashenko and the events that we covered uh, a couple of episodes ago. Uh, We're then going to move to China. We're going to talk about one of our favorite topics, uh, the TikTok ban and the official end of the TikTok ban and the new executive order that that officially rescinded that and that has now stood up a new process uh, that will be uh, unfolding in the next few months to look at uh, the threats posed by um, Chinese apps. And then Lastly, we're going to talk about forced labor and some recent actions um, that were targeting uh, Xinjiang once again, entity list uh, additions from last week, and a few other 
actions that we're going to cover in more detail on the next episode. Uh, and then the lightning round, two quick topics. One is a uh, recent decision uh, relating to the lawsuit that was brought by Oleg Deripaska, uh, challenging his OFAC uh, SDN listing uh, and the outcome there. And then finally, some general licenses and other guidance that was just issued by OFAC relating to COVID relief in particular uh, to heavily sanctioned countries. So that's going to be our show for today. Tim, before we get started, any reflections, any thoughts, any comments before we dive in? So every single segment today is just a continuation of old segments. It's like a soap opera. We keep having kind of these themes or maybe like Real Housewives or something like that, where there's these themes. and you below, below deck. Below deck. We're going to talk about Captain Lee at some point again, but but not today. But 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 I have faith that we will, because every episode we talk about these stories that that run and and continue. And there's a there is a theme and there is a narrative. And um, today is just all part of you know life's rich pageant. Everything everything old is new again. Uh, and in sanction in the world of sanctions and export controls, it's nothing true. ever nothing ever really dies or goes away. It just kind of morphs exactly. and mod- and mutates and and leaves us to continue to ponder and and discuss. So, uh, without uh, further delay, let's start with topic number one. As I said, I think we want to spend just a few minutes at the outset here, checking in once again on the fate of JCPOA 2.0, as we have dubbed it. Uh, I think there are a few developments in the past couple weeks since we've been away that are worth highlighting and that are potentially concerning to those who may have been certain that this was in fact going to happen, that there was going to be a deal. So first and foremost, of course, there was the election in Iran uh, and the Ayatollah's handpicked candidate, Ibrahim Raisi, was the victor, many calling the election rigged. Um, quite frankly, I'm so tired of listening to people talking about rigged elections. It's it's hard to stomach at this point. But um, but that is that is the the, the accusation coming from the West uh, that um, Raisi was uh, essentially uh, preordained to to be the victor here. Uh, he is a hardliner. Uh, he is a cleric, former head of the Iranian Supreme Court. Um, and a close confidant and protege, as we as I said, of the Ayatollah. So he is going to take control, uh, take the reins of government in about about six weeks, as we sit here now in August. So it's late June. Um, so that's pretty significant for a few different reasons. Um, apart from that, we have continued to see reports um, from various sources, from the Iranian side, from other places, claiming that a deal has been reached and, and everything is, is uh, hunky-dory and is going to proceed um, swimmingly. The U.S. has now, I think, made very clear that there is no deal as of now, and there is perhaps um, time is really running out to reach a deal uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, there has been more noise um, and more uh, concern raised because um, the IAEA's monitors have not been allowed back in and are not being given access to certain information that they have requested regarding some of the um, the nuclear sites in Iran. Uh, comments from Secretary Blinken and others uh, at, at very high levels of the U.S. Um, on the U.S. side have have made great pains to make clear that look, there could be two the Iranians could go too far in terms of what they're doing to, pr- to progress their program, their nuclear program, to sort of walk this all back, even if we can 
get to a theoretical deal. And, and, you know, when, when they cross that line, I don't know, but they might be getting dangerously close. Um, and then, uh, yeah, there's, I, I would say a decidedly more pessimistic tone from the U S I think than we've seen since this really started, there have been six rounds of talks, uh, that just the sixth round just ended last week without, a, without a result, without an outcome, without a resolution. Uh, there will be a seventh round at some point soon, but um, as of now, I, I believe they're off at the moment. So uh, that's that's kind of what's happening at the moment. And now I will start, before I throw it to Tim, I will say, of course, there could be, um, you know, there's a lot, there's also, of course, still a lot of um, concern on the U.S. side about, well, but I thought we were trying to get a better deal. What are we, what are we doing here? What's the strategy? What's the end game? How are we going to, we're going to lose all our leverage over the Iranians if we go back and we, we lift sanctions and we kind of go back to um, the, you know, status quo from the pre uh, Trump, you know, pullout of the deal. Uh, and uh, the Israelis of course are now more involved in part because um, they've had a change at the top of their leadership and there's sort of new, new voices there that are, that are of course uh, indicating their displeasure with a potential deal, but also I think more willing to engage with the U S to discuss these things at least. So the, the soup here has gotten a lot murkier, I would say in the last few weeks. And I think this, this next window here before Raisi takes power is critical and may in fact be really kind of the last gasp here. And if this doesn't get done in the next month plus, it's hard to see how it will get done because the U.S. is certainly at least representing that they're ready or willing to walk away if this doesn't get done soon. So um, given how how kind of consequential this is in the grand scheme of things and the fact that this is still kind of bullet point number one in U.S. sanctions policy, we figured we would start here. Let me just throw it to Tim to get some of his initial reactions on sort of what what how he's reading all of this and what we expect and and anything else. So, I mean, I'll start by just cautioning that we're we're reading the tea leaves based on, you know, basically public sources. Um, and but but I, I we actually have a, we actually have a mole in Vienna that is feeding we, we, us. and no. our mole in Vienna that is feeding us. Just kidding. Just kidding. Negotiating. Just kidding. Mr. Mr. Putin, if you're listening. No, sorry, that's not our mole in Vienna. Um, so so basically, basically. I started by cautioning that because I, I, I do think we it's important not to read too much into this because people are speaking for public consumption in ways that they think further their interests behind closed doors. And so it's not necessarily what you're hearing in the media is exactly what's going on. But I, 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 I think that a, a couple of things have changed in the last few weeks. One is I do think there's more urgency um, to, to finish this before Raisi takes takes office, which is about another month, as I understand it. And, and, and what I'm, what I'm reading out of Iran is that, um, he really would, doesn't want to be responsible for this deal if it goes bad. And the, but the, the Supreme leader is still supportive of going back into the JCPOA. And since the Supreme leader really calls the shots in Iran, that's still what the Iranians want to do, but that Raisi would prefer that it not have his name on it and that it have, um, Rouhani's name on it. And so I think that there is a decent chance that, um, that, that if they're going to do the deal from the Iranian side, it's going to be, um, with Rouhani and not with Raisi, which means that 
the deadline is coming up for Iran to sign off and that they may go off in a different direction if Raisi becomes president. Not 100%, but that's that's what I'm hearing and it makes some sense. So that adds some urgency. I think from the U.S. side, um, the 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 U.S. is a little bit conflicted because I think that on the one hand, the U.S. is still very committed, and we've seen it in many of the other sanctions policies, to making peace with the, our friends in the European Union, to um, furthering their interest in the name of strong alliances, and the European Union still, from everything that I've read and seen, and and really over the past three years, everything that the European Union has done, they support this deal and want this deal to come back into place. And so from that perspective, the U.S. is still really on board. What you said about Israel, I think, is very important because um, because Netanyahu had turned this into a partisan issue. And really, when he went and gave a speech to Congress, kind of blasting the, the deal that, Obama, that President Obama was making at the time, that turned it into an issue where the, the Democrats, to some extent, were not as concerned about what the Israelis thought because they had thought that Netanyahu had turned it into a political issue. The new leadership in Israel seems to be kind of doing what you do when you're in a real alliance. You go behind closed doors and you work these things out with your friends. You don't try to embarrass them in public. And so the at least as I understand it, the Israelis, the new Israeli leadership has some of the same concerns that President Netanyahu did, but it's raising them in a way that is much more um much more likely to get the attention of the Biden administration and create some conflict in that administration in terms of whether we go with our European alliance and what they've wanted to do, or whether we, you know, actually put the interests of the Israeli government, the expressed interests of the Israeli government further ahead, which would mean a a smaller chance of getting into this deal. And so I I think that does create some confusion, probably not enough to, to scuttle the deal on its own, but it is taking a long time, and and we've talked about this on the podcast before. From the U.S. perspective, time has never really been the Biden administration's friend because the because the nuclear deal expires. It, it, parts of it expire in, in 2025. Parts of it expire in 2030. And given the and given the ticking clock, the longer it takes to get into a deal, the less time the Isra- the the Iranians are bound by the terms of the deal. And so, but the but the sanctions relief does not go away. And so, so basically, you would be giving sanctions relief every day that passes. You're getting less and less in return from the Iranians. And so, as the clock ticks, you get less from the U.S. side with respect to this deal. So, so time is is. It, creates a weaker incentive for the U.S. to really want to return to this deal. So I think all of that is playing in to make it seem a little bit less likely. Now, that said, when you step back from it, it's June, and the same concerns that we talked about in May are still really animating things. Um, And that is that the Iranians, at the end of the day, I think, want back into the deal. The U.S. at the end of the day wants back into the deal, and the Europeans want back into the deal because nobody likes this situation where the Europeans are really bearing the brunt of the secondary sanctions that are the subject of the deal. The Iranians are bearing the brunt. Europeans don't want them. The Iranians don't want them. And the U.S. really never wanted to implement them in the first place. If The the Biden administration certainly wouldn't have restored the secondary sanctions that the Trump administration did on its own. That, to me, is the motivating dynamic, is you have three parties that want to make a deal, and they probably will. But we've seen recent signs that throw that into a little bit of doubt. Yeah, and and I'll also add the the one big thing too is that 
you know, the the idea that they could reach agreement to essentially get back to, again, status quo kind of pre-withdrawal from the deal in 2018, you know, that's one thing. But I think there is going to be a lot of pressure on the U.S., certainly, domestic, just domestically, to do better than that, obviously, and to... To Tim's point, either extend the timelines, extend the reach of this, extend the breadth, extend the, uh, you know, the type of promises that the U.S. can extract, whether it relates to ballistic missiles or other, uh, or other, you know, conduct of concern from the U.S. perspective uh, with regard to the Iranians. And it's it's a little unclear sort of how you how you get there from here to some degree. I mean, there is there is certainly going to be a lot. There are going to be ample sanctions that are not going to be touched by anything uh, that would be agreed to by the U.S. to get back in. Obviously, uh, there will be plenty of there. There will still be, in theory, plenty of leverage to be wielded to to get to that next phase. Let's say, uh, if we can get back in the door, then what does the next phase look like? But, but again, there's, um, you know, it's it's going to take a little bit of a leap of faith to say, okay, well, let's just get in to this kind of back to the status quo or to back to square one again, essentially to the deal we'd struck, you know, six years ago. And, and then we're going to hope that over the course of the next, you know, two years, three years, whatever it is, we can get to that next phase. That's going to be really the, you know, the next level, higher order, more impactful piece perhaps from the U S side. So, that's you know again it, is that a, is the is the will there or the is the sort of the handicapping of whether that's even possible is that eroding is that falling away it's really hard to say I agree with Tim that you have to take all of this with a grain of salt but it does but again now that we have the newly elected leader of Iran who's who's set to take power who's the handpicked uh, you know person steward uh, by the supreme leader in Iran. Uh, you know, I think we are now the clock is really ticking and I think we are coming up to sort of the zero hour here in terms of whether this is going to happen or not. And I think, uh, it may not be the next, by the next episode that we record, but I would imagine that by the end of July, we will know in all likelihood one way or the other, whether this is really going to happen or not. So anyway, we wanted to do a quick check in there because there, there have been some, you know, some dark clouds, uh, on the horizon here with JCPOA, uh, 2.0, 2.0, and we did think it was, given how important it is and how much time is being invested in this across the globe, uh, it, it, it seemed like a worthwhile topic to, to lead things off. So with that, let's shift gears to, I think, another very important topic and another topic that, you know, Tim hinted at a key theme, I think, that we're going to touch on here, which is, you know, again, sort of building bridges and working collaboratively with our friends in the EU in particular, uh, and that's uh, Belarus and the new sanctions that were just introduced, just announced with respect to Belarus uh, last week. So let me talk, talk yeah. to Tim. So the, Bel- the Belarusian action that, that took place last re- week is uh, both a continuation of a segment that we had a few weeks ago on the po- podcast where we talked about the the forced diversion of a commercial Ryanair flight between um, Greece and, and Lithuania. Uh it, that flight was forced out of the air and, and made to land in Belarus, um, in which at which point uh, journalist Raman uh, 
Pratasevich and his girlfriend, Sofia Sapega, were taken off the plane um, and into custody, as we understand it. Uh, obviously, the European Union is very upset by that. It's already taken some unilateral action. But last week, um, the United States and the European Union and uh, Canada and the United Kingdom um, took multilateral action. So again, the continuation of the Biden administration's theme of multilateral sanctions are usually the best way to go. And particularly when they are in response to an action that took place in the heart of Europe, I mean, in, in, within the territory of the European Union. And so um, what was announced was that uh, the State Department and, and a number of other uh, agencies around the world uh, imposed travel restrictions on a number of mem members of the Belarusian government. Um, but in addition, uh, OFAC actually uh, designated 16 individuals and five entities. I mean, some of these were very high up in the um, Belarusian government. Uh, there were also in the Belarusian security forces. And then uh, then there were also um, you know, entities that that uh, were basically state-controlled entities that were, at least as uh, according to U.S. officials, were part of the uh, either the violent crackdown that's been going on since the um, fraudulent August 2020 election in which uh, Lukashenko uh, kept power, but there have been many protests since then, or involved in the in the arrest of of the journalist um, and his friend. So so basically, more on the same subject with respect to Belarus. This is the first real multilateral action in response to that that we expected that it would be coming and and. There it is. It, it's it's there, and and it's really not a huge escalation. But I think what's important about it is the the coordination with the allies and the fact that um, sanctions are at least one piece of the toolkit that that are being used in response to this um, pretty shocking act. Yeah, I think I, I for me the big takeaway honestly is really the EU kind of leading the way on this, right? I mean, this was, yep. and this is this is again very important and and. I think illustrative of the preferred approach of the of the Biden administration with regard to these types of actions. You know, this was again to Tim's point. This is this is uh, you know action that's occurring. You know, involving multiple EU territories, uh, and so it makes all the sense in the world that the EU would sort of take the lead on this. I think the consensus seems to be that. The, you know, and for those who aren't tracking this, the the actions taken by the EU go beyond just kind of individual targeted sanctions. They are more uh, sectoral sanctions in, in in nature. They're they're targeting the banking, the oil and tobacco, and the potash industry, which is critical in Belarus. Uh, and those, I think, again, consensus seems to be that that is a a real a real escalation in terms of severity on on the part of the EU, and that that's a sort of a welcome uh escalation on the part of the eu and that the us i think to tim's point the us has you know put a number of individuals who are part of the regime and entities including some government entities like the belarusian kgb on the on the sdn list uh and th that was pretty much what we expected i think is that people that are sort of closely tied to and closely involved in the human rights abuses and other anti-democratic activities that have been going on in Belarus for, you know, for quite some time, but certainly tracing back to last summer and then through the, through the Ryanair flight, uh, that was what we we're going to see. I think the question that I would like to pose uh, sort of for everybody to think about and for Tim, for you to ponder is clearly the U.S. could do more. But I think, again, 
was in a coordinated effort, kind of let the EU take the lead on this to some degree uh, in the first instance or in this instance. Uh, so that's number one. So the U.S. I think could clearly do more, as we have talked about, and this was a you know a, a fairly significant but relatively measured move on the part of the U.S. just in terms of exercising its own its own sanctions authorities. That's number one. Number two is, and I know this, and Tim, I know you know this from just having discussed this with people all around the world. When is it that Belarus is verging into the territory of a country that is now so s- severely um, compromised by, or the risks are, have been, you know, increased so much in terms of the sanctions that are targeted there that companies around the world are going to say, I'm just not doing business with Belarus anymore. I'm going to treat it like, I'm going to treat it like an embargo country. I'm going to treat it like many treat, you know, Venezuela or the, the more heavily sanctioned countries, because the risk is just far outweighing whatever potential economic reward you might have. Um, I know of, I can think of at least two or three companies that I've been in touch with just in the last couple of weeks who have said, you know, we're basically putting Belarus on the on our blacklist. We're basically going to treat them like we treat North Korea and Iran and Syria, et cetera. So that's obviously very significant. And we're not anywhere close to really exhausting the authorities that could be deployed to target Belarus at this point. So that's my question to you, Tim, is, is that when, or when is that, are we at that tipping point right now, as it seems some might think, uh, or, you know, do we think that there's more, there's more coming in this regard that might push us even further toward that? So I'm getting the same sorts of questions. And I do think that, you know, from a, from a client standpoint, from a, you know, public opinion standpoint, Belarus is getting to be a, a relatively heavily sanctioned country. I think in reality, when you look at what the sanctions are, you know, on a scale of one to 10 with, you know, Iran and North Korea being the 10 and Cuba also probably being the 10 um, and, and Russia being a seven and, and Venezuela being a six and a half, you know, I think Belarus is probably about a five right there with Myanmar. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of room to go up. Um, you know, you could have a full-fledged embargo like some of the first countries that I talked about, and we're certainly not there yet with Belarus. But the risk is there, and I, I will say that um, the fact that the the sanctions regime is is multilateral and being led by the EU would make me really nervous. Um, I think if if President Lukashenko, uh, you know, doesn't do anything outrageous going forward, that you know. It probably, at least from the U.S. perspective, these will probably stop about where they are. But given his history, I think the chances of President Lukashenko not doing anything outrageous going forward are probably, you know, low. And so I, that's why I think that companies that are being, you know, risk sensitive are are not at, not too out of far out of the ballpark. The current situation is a five, but. Uh, you know, one more act like this, and it could get to a seven or eight pretty fast. They could pass Russia and Venezuela on the yeah, the, and if, the most heavily sanctioned list. And if you're looking at something that's anything beyond just you know sort of a you know a, a customer order here or there or something like that, if it's something more long term, if it's more if it's investment in country things like that that are going to be potentially put in jeopardy in jeopardy if there's a you know further escalation here, then I think those are those are difficult kind of risk questions that you have to be wrestling with at this point that I think people are wrestling with to the extent they haven't already made decisions on that yet. But I think now this is really, 
brought that uh it's kind of unavoidable that's got that's got to be dealt with at this point yeah i mean i view them as kind of myanmar burma in that area where the current sanctions are manageable if you're doing business in that country i mean it's just you know you need to do electronic screening and really if you're dealing with the government be very careful but but it's doable but because of the because the situation seems like it's trending bad and potentially trending really bad um, from in a long, you know, six month to couple year horizon could be really ugly. And if you're worried about that, you might want to get out. Yeah, no, agreed. So anyway, that's food for thought. We'll keep our eyes on Belarus. I'm sure we may come back to that one again, because again, nothing, nothing in this world ever, ever really dies or goes away. It just morphs and mutates. So I'm sure we will have more Belarus content in, in a future episode. Uh, with that, let's move away to one of our old favorites, which is China and TikTok. And so this one came up, uh, this, this executive order came up not long after we recorded the last episode, actually. So this is um, a tiny bit stale, but we have not had a chance to talk about it on the pod uh, as of yet. And given how much time we've devoted to this and the various lawsuits that came out uh, challenging these executive orders, we, we felt like we had to circle back to this. So um, June 9th, it was announced that uh, President Biden was introducing a new, was issuing a new executive order uh, protecting American sensitive data from foreign adversaries. And in particular, this was meant to, again, build on the ICTS supply chain executive order from 2019, the same one that was the underpinning of the TikTok and WeChat executive orders from last summer. But in the same breath of this executive order, um, the TikTok and WeChat executive orders, as well as one subsequent order that was issued in January of this year in a, in a similar vein, um, were all uh, revoked. And so this is, I think, um, you know, our, our crystal balls, we looked into many times on this one. And I think this is where we thought this was probably going to go, especially considering that these uh, executive orders were essentially completely uh, neutered by the court actions that came attacking them uh, in the fall and never really got rolled out. And I think the, um, again, this is a theme but um, the the comments that you've seen, um, including from both of us in various publications, essentially said, uh, you know, look, I think nobody disputes or diminishes the threat that's posed by China or other foreign adversaries in terms of um, access to sensitive U.S. Uh, data and sense and data of uh, U.S. persons in particular through um, uh, software and other sort of applications, whether they be on smartphones or, or otherwise. And it's that problem, which is, again, not one that's really in, in a controversial one or in dispute, um, but it was the execution and the sort of the somewhat haphazard way that the Trump administration went about trying to get at that issue, throwing these executive orders together, which we covered at length last year. I'm not going to go back into that. But uh, this is really a chance to kind of hit the refresh button on that and hit the and, and just start over and that is clearly what is happening here and in fact i think this is this is language that has been quoted in many um different periodicals uh and many different articles on this but it there's a a, a little passage in the executive order that says the federal government should evaluate these threats through rigorous evidence-based analysis and should use and should address any unacceptable or undue risk consistent with overall national security, foreign policy, and economic objectives, including the preservation and demonstration of America's core values and fundamental freedoms. I think that's, that pretty much sums up 
in the minds of the Biden administration and many others, what the Trump administration did not do. There was no rigorous analysis. There was no process. There was no real there there, as we saw in these lawsuits and the and the um, you know and the way that they were uh, the records that were furnished to defend them in court. Uh, and and so that has now all been undone. And basically, what we have in its place is a potential process led by the Commerce Department again to sort of look at this problem uh, in more depth and to issue some reports. And those reports are going to go to the White House and to the president and his advisors. They're not necessarily um, going to go to Congress or to any or to the public. So this is going to play out over the course of the next four months, six months, uh, where they're going to take a look at these at these issues uh, within the interagency process, again, led by the Commerce Department to, you know, really dig into these threats that are posed by, again, these adversaries who control or own connected software applications um, and uh, the threats that they pose to sensitive, um, you know, U.S. person data. So there's not a lot of meat on the bones in terms of what that's going to mean, what that's going to look like, how that's going to play out, what kind of policy we're going to get out of this, what kind of process we may get out of this. Like, are, are we going to get a CFIUS like process out of this? Are we going to get something else? Um, I don't know. I don't think anybody really knows at this point, but the, the bottom line is what was put together with sort of, uh, you know, spit and glue and, popsicle sticks last year has now been thrown away and we're starting over and the idea is to build something on a more solid foundation to to get at this you know very real national security issue and i think that's sort of the 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 broad takeaway i have certainly from um you know revoking these orders and issuing executive order 14034 uh and so that's that's really all we know at this point i i you know i'll throw it to tim just for some thoughts and comments but but that's this brings to the end at least this chapter of the of the saga. I'm pretty sad that I'm not going to be able to hashtag TikTok ban anymore. But other than that, I'm not really all that sad that this is going away. So, so you said you weren't going to rehash over it, and I'm not going to rehash over it much. But I can't resist rehashing over rehashing it over just a little bit, just to just to sh- show why kind of these statements at fifty thousand feet, where this is a more evidence based approach. To, to bring to bring those home to 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 kind of I kind of illustrate exactly what you're talking about. So so back in the day, the president started tweeting about how bad TikTok and WeChat were, and that things were going to happen to TikTok and WeChat, and that ultimately culminated in a process in which the Commerce Department and CFIUS were leveraged to force. Oracle and or force a process in which the president said that that those companies had to sell or that TikTok had to sell to a U.S. purchaser, and there were bids that were kind of orchestrated by the U.S. government. The president was making statements that the U.S. government was going to take a, essentially a commission on the deal. Um, or, Oracle and Walmart won the bid to, to bid on this forced sale of TikTok, and then the deal was rejected. Like, I can't even imagine. Like this, this seems like a different world, and 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 the and and the driving motivation for all of that craziness was supposedly that TikTok and WeChat, more than any other Chinese company, were such such existential threats to uh, U.S. personal data that it had to be done, and it had to be done in that particular way, and it just looked like such a fig leaf. 
at the time that it almost brought into disrepute the idea that those companies um, really were some sort of a threat because it just looked so insane. Um, I think that's the that is the atmosphere in which you have to look at the new Biden administration approach, and to say I think they're trying to salvage it. I mean, I, look the the idea that TikTok and WeChat um, have it like like many Chinese companies um, have some role in the harvesting of U.S. person data for reasons that the the Chinese that that only the Chinese government knows like. By all accounts, that's actually happening. Now, whether they're the two bigs, biggest offenders, I think a lot of people would dispute that, but but that appears to be happening or at least happening at some level with respect to Chinese companies and U.S. personal data. Um, but but the way that the, the prior administration went about dealing with that issue was so fundamentally ridiculous that um, that not only did this administration, you know, not only did they lose in court, but I think this administration was forced to kind of take a deep breath before dealing with this issue because they had brought that whole approach into such disrepute that you just basically needed a timeout and then you start over. And this is the timeout plus the starting over with an actual process that is not designed to get any particular company, not designed to force a sale to U.S. purchasers for a U.S. government backed commission or whatever that was. Um, and hopefully we'll get to a good place because the issue of um, the issue of, of the, the Chinese government and Chinese companies placing U.S. person personal data at risk is a real issue that needs to be dealt with in a real way through a real process as opposed to what happened before, which even when I say it, it just seems so ridiculous that I can't imagine that it ever really happened. Yeah, we're, we're not meaning to make light, obviously, of the underlying issues at all. I mean, you know, the entire CFIUS process was revamped by Congress in part to address this issue. Uh, so it is a real issue. Uh, it is not going away. But again, the, the manner and method and means that the prior administration took to try to achieve that uh, obviously was a spectacular failure. And so here we are, uh, you know, about six months into the Biden administration with a with a full reset. And, you know, we're going to we've been seeing this kind of piecemeal. We just saw this with the uh, 13959 that we talked about the last time and the, um, the Chinese military industrial companies uh, to some degree. It's, it's just a reset. It's a it's sort of let's 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 kind of tidy this up. Let's put a little more rigor and framework and process in place here so that it's it's sustainable and not um just kind of a you know it's a, something that goes works willy-nilly at the whim of um you know whatever uh you know comes across the twitter transom on a given day so that is that is i think where you know where we are with this and and you know it'll be again I don't know that we'll be talking about this one now again for a while, but at some point we will, because at some point there will be some actual, presumably concrete uh, steps that are taken pursuant to whatever the, um, you know, the the deep dive is that's going to be done here and the reports that are going to be issued. Yeah. I mean, look, it's a serious issue and you need to deal with it in a serious way. And if you don't, I mean, we've now seen what happens. You can take two or three steps back because you bring the whole issue. You, you, you cast skepticism on the whole issue and, and force people to go even slower than they might have had to otherwise. I mean, you know, it, it, it is, it is another example of kind of stop digging and then digging out of the ditch that was created. Yeah. 
no no doubt so in any event let's let's leave um let's let's throw some dirt on the tiktok ban for now and then uh let's move on to our final topic of the day which is another china topic and taking a look at a couple of actions that were announced last week targeting forced labor in xinjiang and i'll throw that to tim so that's another continuing theme on our podcast is the U.S. response to forced labor in Xinjiang. I think that, um, you know, continuing with the Biden administration multilateral action theme, um, Xinjiang was a big topic of discussion at the G7 conference uh, earlier this month uh, in over in Europe. And the U.S. has taken a number of actions. And, and this was a this was an area in which the Trump administration and the Biden administration, I think, agree not only 100 percent on policy, but in many ways, 100 percent on what to do about it. So unlike the TikTok actions, unlike the 13959 actions, what the administration did uh, with respect to the forced labor in Xinjiang and the human rights abuses in Xinjiang have been much more traditional. So, you know, they, there was a OFAC sanctions program related to uh, the Xinjiang. It was the result of a congressional statute on the same subject that was passed in the last year of the, the Trump administration. The Trump administration designated some individuals um, based on that that program. Uh, and then earlier this month, um, the Biden administration kind of went one step further, uh, marshalling three different agencies of the U.S. government, Homeland Security, the Department of Commerce, and the Department of Labor, all of which uh, were announcing measures to uh, essentially address the the PRC uh, human rights and, and use of force labor issues with respect to Xinjiang. And from the commerce side, I mean, we'll just focus on those here, although there were some import issues, there were some, some um, labor investigations that were announced. But from the commerce side, five entities in the solar industry were placed onto the entity list, which means as a result of the entity list designation, uh, those those uh, entities can no longer receive U.S. origin goods, as mentioned on the entity list, without uh, a license from the Commerce Department. And so it's it's a I think it's more of a symbolic uh, step, although, but because I think, at least as I understand it, these are more in the su supply chain. The Commerce Department side is more of a symbolic step. I think the import restrictions probably were were more um, ha had more teeth. But I, I, I we'll leave it to some of our guests at another point to talk about that because you know we're much more on the export side than the import side. But the Commerce Department action was coordinated with U.S. agencies, and our allies from around the world are also taking steps on this issue. And so um, I think that this is one where it is a continuing issue. Uh, the, the approach from administration to administration has been relatively consistent and relatively serious, uh, both in the last administration and in this one. And we'll see what happens going forward. But I think this is, this is something to watch because, the, as I understand it, the Chinese response to this was was very aggressive and, and harsh and that there will be counter sanctions coming out of, of China um, in response to this issue, but also some other sanctions with respect to China that had been announced in the last few months. Yeah, I'll just I'll just make a few final comments on this. Um, I, again, I, I think we, we largely we, we are planning to have some of our um, some friends and colleagues on to talk more about the 
forced labor issues that we're seeing here with the, the big withhold release order uh, that came out last week targeting the solar industry and some other recent orders of the same in, of the same ilk that are we know creating uh, real havoc in a number of different industries uh, globally and certainly with ties to the U.S. Uh, and so I do think it's notable, as Tim said, that this is one area where there is pretty remarkable consistency between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. I think this is one one area where it's fairly seamless, and I think you're seeing the you know the branching out that we're getting to now. As Tim mentioned, you know there were some authorities that were put in place last year. There was there's obviously the Global Magnitsky Act that has been in place to target human rights abuses, uh, and and now we're seeing this as a standalone uh, basis for these entity listings. Not the first time, but but a relatively recent. Um, uh, you know, sort of justification for entity listings. You don't, you don't, you haven't seen that a lot historically, but certainly the last couple of years you have. So I think it's just this is kind of again another sort of building block and another um, another you know important continuation of that same theme that's being pulled through. I do think also similar to a to a point that we raised earlier. You know, this is another issue where um, we know that uh, anybody who has any ties to either this industry in China, solar in China, or certainly anybody who has ties to Xinjiang for any reason, because they have supplier relationships there, because they have manufacturing there, because uh, they have any presence there, or any ties there whatsoever, um, you know, this has now, I think, become one of the, if not the most kind of critical, time-consuming and uh, you know, important issue to deal with from a trade compliance, business and human rights um, standpoint, supply chain management standpoint, all of those things, right? It's all these things kind of tied together, married up, um, you know, because this is this has such an, an, an incredible uh, um, potential to disrupt business in a way that is, um, you know, so just monumental, frankly, that uh, I, and I think we're we're seeing stories and and hearing more about companies that are getting caught up in this because they have perhaps not moved as quickly as as the U.S. government has wanted them to move to to be out in front on this or to be prepared for things like this. Uh, and it's just a reminder that you know these things I think grow and spread quickly. And there have been signs, obviously, that this is going to continue to grow in these areas. And so for anybody out there that's wrestling with this. And trying to figure out how to either disentangle themselves or, to Tim's point, how do you stay on the right side of the Chinese authorities if you try to back away from this quietly uh, and not get yourself caught up in the uh, in some of the new Chinese regulations that are designed to, uh, you know, bully people into essentially ignoring uh, the U.S. and other Western, um, you know, sanctions and repercussions that are coming at companies that are doing business in this area. Uh, it's it's a it's a very very tricky very very time consuming issue that is just occupying all kinds of uh, you know resources and brain space at, at many many companies around the world at the moment obviously so um, you know this is I had two conversations about this earlier today uh, I, I know Tim has been talking about this with his clients a lot as well but this isn't going away this is only going to get worse I think and is only going to get more challenging and so. Like we said, we just wanted to highlight this most recent action. The, of the five entities, I would note that XPCC, which was a featured 
which was featured prominently in the OFAC action that was brought targeting Xinjiang last year. So they are now both in SDN and on the entity list. Um, you know, they were one of the they were one of the um, they were one of the five named entities last week. But um, but this is uh, again this is not going away. This is just going to expand, I think, and continue to get to deepen in terms of the complexity here and and the ability to continue to navigate it if you're if you're trying to walk that line uh, of you know maybe we can get by without having to address it square on I think it's I think it's becoming harder and harder to do that uh, this has become this has become a, a very difficult one to to manage uh, at, at this point so in any event we just wanted to we wanted to touch on that briefly we wanted to highlight that and again we're we're teasing that for the next episode we're hoping to have a more in-depth discussion on the on some of the other on the other side of this coin, the sort of import the imports, um, customs, business and human rights uh, side of this equation, supply chain management, and we're gonna, like we said, have a couple of uh, guests on next time to talk about that. Hopefully, so uh, that wraps up our uh, the main part of our episode for today. And with that, we only have two uh, final topics, which I will pause for our favorite sound effect, the lightning round. Um, topic number one is one that I believe we talked about at some point, uh, way back when, when this was perhaps not when it was first filed, but, um, we wanted to raise a, um, an opinion that came down in DC about two weeks ago, which was a lawsuit that was brought by Oleg Deripaska, uh, the, uh, Russian oligarch. And of course he was sanctioned. Uh, on April 6, 2018, along with a number of others. Um, and that was, of course, the inciting event that um, triggered all kinds of complications relating to EM Plus and Rusal and all of his other business interests and, and a long um, process to try to for him to um, divest some of his holdings there to, to help get those companies out from under um, OFAC blocking sanctions. So he brought suit try, challenging his designation uh, uh, as an SDN under um, 13661 and 13662, um, I believe two of the two of the uh, Crimea-related EOs, and um, there was just an opinion handed down, like we said, about two weeks ago, uh, finding for the government, um, dismissing his claims, uh, and uh, getting rid of his challenge. So. You know, we're we're doing this in lightning round. We're not gonna we're not gonna wade into all of the ins and outs of this, but I I will say a couple of things um, quickly on this, and then throw it to Tim. So one of the reasons we wanted to cover this is we've obviously been doing a lot of discussion lately about some of the federal court litigation that we've seen that has challenged various actions of the government, whether it be DoD or OFAC uh, or other um, agencies of of late, and we have seen uh, quite a bit of success, quite frankly, uh, perhaps more success than we are used to seeing in this sphere, a higher rate of success, at least, with some of these recent lawsuits. So we did think it was interesting to um, make note of this one, in part because this was an unsuccessful challenge. And, um, you know, we should we should say we, you know, we know the the attorney that brought this and we, we have a lot of respect for him. And he's he's been very successful in many other of his attempts to bring suit against OFAC. So this is no uh, black mark against him at all. This was this is always going to be an uphill battle, I think, in our view, um, as it as it normally is when challenging uh, a designation of this sort. But essentially, at the end of the day, I think a couple couple quick takeaways. 
um, and then uh, and I know Tim has some some thoughts on this as well. One of the things that we were really have been focused on when it whether it was the commerce department justifications in the TikTok and WeChat lawsuits or it was DOD when it came to the CCMC listings was the real um, you know dearth of evidence that was in those administrative records to support the the agency actions that were being challenged. And I think as we have said many times and as I think I will you know stand by and as you, anybody who reads the memorandum opinion in the Deripaska case will see, OFAC's just better at doing this, in part because they've been doing it a long time. And so they understand how to build a record when they are going to be uh, adding somebody, when they're designating somebody on the SDN list and uh, under specific you know, uh, reference authorities. They're just better at connecting those dots, building that record, having the support. I would note here, we were shocked in some of those other lawsuits that there was no reference whatsoever to classified um, portions of the record. Here, there was a classified portion of the record. Obviously, it's not being quoted in the opinion, but it's referenced and it's it's pointed to by the, by Judge Meta as, as supporting the decision to dismiss the the challenge. And so, um, I think that's just that's just number one. And and I would say that um, you know this this was again sort of the same type of bases that we see in these cases. Generally, you know that the the listings exceeded um, uh, the uh, authority of OFAC, that they were um, arbitrary and capricious under the APA, uh, that they were a violation of due process, uh, all of the sort of same bases that we see typically in these cases. Um, and, you know, I think for, I would say that this outcome is not terribly surprising to me, uh, given again, the fact that we kind of thought this had long odds anyway. And, and, and again, just looking at how an OFAC supported designation uh, is just, you know, looks kind of fundamentally different and perhaps is something that a judge looked at just less skeptically than, you know, the judge, uh, Judge Contreras looked at some of those other um, uh, designations in the CCMC cases, certainly. Um, but, you know, that's not to say that uh, this this is a, um, you know, a sign that all is lost in this vein or that there's no prospect, I think, to successfully challenge these things. I just think that here, perhaps this, um, you know, this is, uh, you know, kind of the home team one, right? The expected outcome is, is what happened here. We didn't, we didn't get a, a, you know, if you're, if you're handicapping these things, if you're, if you're playing odds, a challenger to file a federal lawsuit here, you know, you're not, you're not going to give them overwhelming odds most of the time here. I think this played out as we are, you know, typically would see. Um, although I know Tim, you have at least some question whether or not there was perhaps a little too much deference given to OFAC, given uh, what was in the record and, and sort of the way it was all treated. But, but again, I, I think my, my main takeaway is, um, you know, this is one that maybe restores balance a little bit in, in, in the, the way of the, the, the sanctions forces deployed throughout the universe. Uh, because this one I think is much more of a, what we're used to seeing as opposed to what we've seen in the last few months. Yeah. I mean, so the Xiaomi litigation, the Lukong litigation, they were about a listing by a government agency and the listing had severe consequences for the party listed. And in those two cases, the court took a look at the listing and the basis for the listing and concluded it was, I mean, this is not a technical legal term, but was basically a joke. That is very unusual, as we pointed out at the time, in federal litigation against a government 
agency, particularly in the national security context, usually what you get when you're challenging a government listing is a relatively deferential review of the government action, deferring to the government's national security powers, deferring to the fact that the government is really in the best position to assess a a lot of classified intelligence information and and looking for something that was was egregiously wrong. And and, and if you can't show something that was egregiously wrong, you're you're really not going to have much of a chance. And, And the Deripaska case played like a, 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 a perfect paradigm of the normal national security case. I think, um, you know, my friend Eric Ferrari, who, who did a really nice job litigating this, had a really heavy load to bear in this case because not only was he up against OFAC instead of being up against um, the Department of Defense in this context. And OFAC, as you point out, Brian, did did a pretty nice job. I mean, they articulated some reasons that make some sense as to why you would do a listing if you have these criteria um, that were allowing for a listing. Uh, and, and I think Eric did as, as good a job as he could, but I think he did have a tough case because um, there were some bad facts with respect to Deripaska, or at least OFAC had made some findings of some bad facts. And I think most judges wouldn't be inclined to go behind them, as opposed to in the Xiaomi case, where the Department of Defense didn't really make many factual findings. I mean, there was essentially an agreement that if the term affiliated actually had any meaning, that they couldn't meet that definition. And so, so, and then, you know, you had the misspellings and they really didn't even have a memo at the time that the lawsuit was filed. It was just, it was like night and day in terms of um, you had an agency that was trying to do its job and, and got a lot of deference because of it and an agency in, in the Xiaomi litigation that didn't even appear to be trying and so didn't get nearly as much deference. In fact, got a very skeptical uh, reception from from Judge Contreras. Now, I also want to be delicate here because um, you know my, my friend Judge Maida, whom I worked with at PDS, I think did a, did a nice job. And I think he probably got to the same result that I would have gotten to in this, in this case. So I, and, and so I'm not trying to be critical of the result. And I'm not even much critical of the analysis. I think there was more deference, as I was talking to you before we started recording, Brian, probably more deference than I think is warranted um, to some of these decisions. Because, you know, for example, one of the grounds, one of the criteria for the listing um, was that uh, was that um, that Deripaska was operating in the energy sector of of the the Russian economy. A query whether that is a sufficiently discrete category of people as to 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 really ground a a, a designation in, especially when you I, I I do think there was not sufficient. Um, not not a sufficient recognition of what a, a significant sanction um, being put on the SDN list is. And again, I'm not claiming that that it wasn't warranted in these circumstances, but it seems like, particularly in in the in some of the sections talking about due process, that the severity of the injury was not was not like grappled with sufficiently. And and the agencies kind of expertise yes they found you know based on some actions that he took outside of Russia that he was operating in the energy sector and I I think that was a little bit of a tenuous articulation of, of that type of designation now being close to Putin and some of the things that he was alleged to have done with respect to Putin I think was very different and I think that to me um, if you were doing an analysis of what would get you you know what could properly get you sanctioned and get upheld by a court, 
that looked pretty serious. And if any of that stuff is, you know, even halfway true and, you know, when you're, when you're reviewing an agency decision, if they had evidence for it and then they found that it happened, you have to presume that it is. That struck me as a a much more solid ground. I mean, the other thing that I thought was that, that Eric um, did a nice job with in this case was going after the oligarch list. And I, I'm I'm not sure I thought the, I, I thought the reception to that should have been more like judge Contreras's reception to the DOD um, to the DOD listing. I mean, the, it's one thing with respect to the Deripaska list, listing. So OFAC did have some, you know, they laid out six different grounds for the listing. And I thought some were stronger than others, but some were pretty strong. The oligarch list by all accounts was just taken from Forbes and just reprinted. I mean, and it's been reported in the media quite a bit and without much pushback that I've ever seen from the, from the treasury department. And so, so that list seems like it was not, it was put together in, in, in a much less professional way. And there was much less thought put into it. And, and at least as I read the court's opinion, the response to that was, yeah, but so what? It's not that big deal, big a deal to be on the oligarch list. And it was kind of it, a lot of the the harm from being on that list was poo pooed because it supposedly isn't foreseeable that banks would stop doing your transactions if you're on that list. Yeah, I mean, that's, just I, wrong. that's just no, wrong. Brian, that's, that's just, just wrong. wrong. <laughs> that's just that's just wrong. I mean, you go on a list even if it doesn't. It, and and again, that's also inconsistent with what happened um, in the Lukong and, and Jiami litigation, where part of their injury was reputational. I mean, they were claiming reputational injury from being on the one three five nine nine five nine list, and and Judge Contreras took those claims very seriously. Now, I did think the judge made a made a made a point at the very end of his analysis that really, for me, would have been the beginning and the end of it. It was it it, it was if you're properly an SDN you're not harmed by being on the oligarch list because whatever harm you've got is it, flo- is it really flows from, from the, the other SDN yeah, list. yeah that's right, right. i thought and that so, was i thought so that was I, odd i thought that was odd too why why end with yeah. that why not start with that and then like, also to me, that you don't need the to come, and the end. yeah you don't need to write eight pages on this if that's your if that's your main point quite frankly right. i think it's right. pretty straightforward it's like, yeah, yeah the, the oligarch list is a joke yeah. you, you know but it was taken verbatim from forbes it does cause reputational injury if if that's if if all you are is on the oligarch list and you and I have both seen situations in which that's the case it does cause severe reputational and in some sense financial industry for the people who are just on the oligarch list who aren't on any of the other lists for Deripaska, if he's properly on the SDN list, he's not really getting harmed much more by being on the oligarch list because the SDN list has all of the reputational consequences plus a bunch of actual legal consequences that are much worse. And so it, it's hard to see where the additional harm is. So again, I'd get to the same place, but but the idea that you're not harmed by being on the oligarch list, that's just not factually true. I mean, we have plenty of clients who banks stop their transactions or who who get transactions rejected or blocked because they are on, you know, lists like the oligarch list that don't have any legal consequence, but banks are so, so risk averse that they are, you know, they, they, they basically will stop transactions for things that are in the newspaper. And so if you're actually on a government list, even if it's not a list that has any meaning for a bank whatsoever, they're, they are definitely, um, at least some banks, it will, will, attach consequences to the list even if they aren't legal consequences yeah agreed also curious i'm not aware that there have been any lawsuits that have just challenged the designation or addition to the oligarchs list just on its own right Right. that are a separate which is sort of an interesting and and you know in the same way i don't think we would have ever seen lawsuits that challenged uh you know ccmc listing 
if there hadn't also been 13959 it's just sort of the strange quirk of the way it, it kind of came together and that's how it how it sort of exactly, grew. exactly. but yeah I, your point is well taken i think that's yeah. exactly right and again judge judge made is a great judge and i thought he you yeah. know he 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 did a nice we, job here and we, we have nothing saying we have nothing th- but love and respect for everybody involved in this so please don't anybody accuse exactly. us of, of, sh- of shading anyone who's involved here um but in, but in any event i think it was just uh you know we don't see too many of these especially with somebody who's this high profile like deripaska it's sort of come down and this one's been kicking around for a while and the decision just came down so we thought we were no we should see more of these i think deripaska is a really hard case and it got to where i think i would have expected a really hard case to get but there are cases that are more winnable than deripaska's that are not ever brought and probably should be agreed agreed just takes the appetite to to get to to file that lawsuit so um with that, let's go to let's pivot to the final topic, which I'll throw to Tim, which is um, some recent OFAC general licenses and guidance relating to COVID relief to heavily sanctioned countries. Yeah, so so um, one of the things that the administration did immediately after taking um, office was there was a National Security Memorandum One, which directed all of the relevant government agencies to review U.S. and, and um, multilateral sanctions to evaluate whether or not they were hindering the response to the to the pandemic. And you know that had long been a complaint of sanctioned countries like Venezuela, like Iran. Um, I think those are probably the two highest profile countries in which those had been really serious complaints. There were also complaints about um, the way that it was was hindering the response to the pandemic in Syria as well. Although I think Venezuela, at least to my knowledge and based on you know my non-random sample of, of questions and, and inquiries that I get, Iran and Venezuela were more high, high profile. Now, the, the past administration had responded to that in several ways. Um, the main one being that they put together kind of a, a, a a compendium of authorities that that would allow for exceptions to the um, sanctions against those countries that, that would allow for transactions related to COVID-19. And, and the US, humanitarian transactions are generally an exception to most U.S. sanctions programs, really all U.S. sanctions programs to some extent. And so this this announcement in, in on June seventeenth was not a huge news in the sense that when the Treasury Department issued three new general licenses, one for Iran, one for Syria, and one for Venezuela, to allow that allow those countries to um, engage in even additional transactions. Um, to address the pandemic, it really wasn't much of a step beyond where U.S. law had had gone before. I think the main purpose of these uh, announcements was essentially to send a signal to financial institutions um, that they ought to be uh, allowing more of these transactions to go through. Because despite earlier actions by OFAC, I mean, the the real resistance here, and it, it kind of plays into what we were just talking about with Deripaska, it's the banks. I mean, the banks even these transactions that the the Trump administration was saying, we're not trying to interfere with them, they weren't going through. And so I think what the Biden administration decided to do was with respect to these three countries, 
issue three new general licenses. They lay out exactly in those general licenses what sorts of transactions are allowed despite the sanctions against Iran, Syria, and Venezuela. Um, they do it in some detail. They have a frequently asked question that is directed at financial institutions that says, you know, if they meet the if they meet the standards in this transaction, you should let these transactions go forward. I think it's just another step to try and keep sanctions from interfering with COVID-19 related um, actions in these countries. So in part, I, I hope, um, because the U.S. really wants to not interfere with uh, pandemic-related measures, and in part, I think, to, to make it very clear that those countries should not be blaming the U.S. for, for interfering in pandemic me you know, measures. I think it's in part, you know, substance and in part kind of trying to avoid blame. Yeah, I mean, I think that just a couple of quick thoughts on this. I, to Tim's point, you know, I think we, I think we covered the the sort of you know compendium of of you know sort of general licenses and exemptions that were available that were kind of rolled out early in the pandemic. I think we covered that in like episode number I don't even know four or five somewhere way back in like late March or April of last year. And I think the question and the comment that we had at the time, which is exactly what Tim just said, is like how much difference is this really going to make? Because at the end of the day, it's the banks who decide and the banks who have the risk tolerance that sort of drives all of this. And if they're not comfortable, um, you know, kind of opening up to allow more humanitarian trade related to the COVID crisis to these, to these types of countries, then it's just not going to happen. And obviously, uh, you know, we're aware that, you know, some of it has been happening certainly, but not, perhaps not enough. And I think to Tim's point, this is, you know, another effort, it seems to, to sort of make this, you know, to reduce that, that risk uh, tolerance or to, to sort of help that, that risk tolerance um, that is, you know, just so low for the banks and, and make it that much more clear and to make it clear for anybody who's, you know, in the, um, who's supplying any of these items. I mean, there are now specific, you know, there are specific items that are called out in these general licenses and in this, in these FAQs where it's it's now very clear that, you know, previously you might need a specific license, now you don't. That's, you know, that's a pretty big deal as these things go uh, and a pretty significant step. And, and we certainly know from having clients who are in the, not just in the financial industry, but in the, you know, on the side of, you know, providing some of these goods that might fall under these general licenses, uh, that there has been a lot of, you know, perhaps willingness, but but there has been a lot of difficulty as, as sort of predicted at the outset, that this would be easier said than done to just sort of open the floodgates and let humanitarian trade flow uh, from the U.S. or connected to the U.S. to these types, to these countries that are more heavily uh, subject to U.S. sanctions. So, you know, we'll see. Hopefully this will help things. Hopefully this will make things better rather than worse. I think to Tim's point, um, I think there is a there is a you know a legitimate reason to or a legitimate hope to kind of clear up some of that confusion and, and pave the way and open things up. But to Tim's point as well, I think the from an optics standpoint, the last thing that the U.S. wants to be accused of is being kind of obstructing this. Whereas, you know, I think under the under the old administration, I don't know that they cared all that much when it came to certain countries. But I think certainly this administration does does care about that, and I think it is it's part of the broader 
narrative and the broader fabric that they're trying to weave in terms of, again, building bridges with old allies and trying to make new allies, et cetera. And so I think this all is of a piece with that. And it, it does make sense at this point that this something like this would, would be rolled out. Yeah, I think it's genuine. I think it'll genuinely help, um, you know, a general license that's directed specifically at COVID relief. And as you point out, has the specific mentions of types of equipment that were, you know, not uh, obviously covered by earlier humanitarian exceptions is a good thing. And I think that the, the FAQ guidance that they gave in conjunction with this, particularly the one that's directed right at the financial institutions, is is basically... You know, when when you're trying to get a transaction through, as we know, and you're dealing with a bank, being able to point to a specific GL and to be able to point to specific guidance helps a lot more than being able to than than pointing to a particular memo. Def- or a, right. defi- or a definition right. of something and or say, no, definition. no, no, we are covered by this because this is this falls under this category. Um, right. Well, go to OFAC and tell so, so them I think to, it'll help. Tell them to yeah, tell them to confirm that for us. Okay, good luck with that. Um, so in any event, okay. So that's, uh, that's, I think, yeah, I agree not to be, to take off my cynical hat and to put on my, um, let's see, let's see the the good in mankind. Uh, I think I agree. I think this is probably a a net benefit for a win-win all around for everybody. Hopefully you play Candide for a day. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you for playing us out on that. Um, and with that, I think we're done for this week. Uh, we're wrapped up. Uh, with and again heading into we're, we're recording this on June 28 we're heading into the um, Independence Day uh, holiday weekend here in the U.S. this will be out late this week uh, we are planning to be back in a couple weeks again with some guests to talk I think a lot more about um, business and human rights especially as it relates to China and all the actions some of which we touched on here but others of which are swirling around and causing um, great disruption and consternation around the world uh, so we're hoping for that in mid-July. Uh, and with that, I think, uh, Tim, anything else to to write us out or any final thoughts? We we live in the best of all possible worlds, Brian. So stay sanctions-free. Stay sanctions-free. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Bye.